this morning's scripture is from Exodus 16, verses 1 through 8, and I believe it's on page 68 of your Bibles. Give you a moment to turn there. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, then the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them, whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what... What are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, who are, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your wonderful, life-giving word. I just pray that it pierces our heart this morning as we listen to the message. And that as we leave this place, Lord God, your word would not come back void, but again, would teach us throughout the course of the week and through our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Well, good morning. We will be in John chapter 7 this morning. Changed it up a little bit this morning to get a background verse and some things that are alluded to in our text in John chapter 7. Uh, we have a long and hard passage this morning to understand. Uh, so thanks, Dave, for starting us off in the book of Exodus. Uh, our text this morning, it connects to what we saw last week and also to what we will see next week. Uh, as you may recall from last week, for those of you who are here, the, the crowds were coming to Jesus. The crowds were asking things of Jesus for tangible things, for things that they wanted for themselves. That will continue this morning, and we will transition our time into the Jews jumping into the scene, and they have hostility towards Jesus uh, and next week we get to look forward to is we'll see what the disciples' response was to the things that Jesus said, the children of God, which would be hopefully our response to Jesus. And so this morning we will see that the plan of God is the love of God sends the Son of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that you and I can become children of God. So will you pray with me as we jump into our text in John chapter 6. Father, 
Incline our hearts to fear your name. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word this morning. Would you unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning in your love? Would your words come out of my mouth to penetrate hearts so that we might be transformed and conformed more to the image of your Son? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pick up in our text this morning in John chapter 6, verses 22 to 23. That's where we left off last week. As you might recall, Jesus had gone across the lake and the crowds began to wonder where he has gone. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had, only, there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And so as we've already recalled that the crowds, they go to seek after Jesus. They don't want to follow Jesus's teaching, but they want to benefit from being close to him its proximity and what he can do in his power. And word has traveled about this miracle worker. Did you see that in the text that other boats from around this lake have come to join Jesus and they see what he has provided. And when they find Jesus, the crowd has three questions for him. And Jesus has three sets of answers. You'll look with me at verse 25. We don't have slides this morning, so you can turn that off to us if you wouldn't mind. But in verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So the first question that the crowds come to Jesus with is a question about time. When did you come here? In verse 26, you were seeking, he says, and now you have seen what I did. He fed 20,000 people. We saw it last week, right? And Jesus reminded them of the tangible things that he has done and the things that they have seen. But he says that they are missing that which is most important, eternal things. He says in verse 27, the food that endures comes from the Son of Man, from Jesus. They wanted more physical and material blessings. They had probably another day, and it was morning time maybe, and they were looking for breakfast after they had received their supper the day before. They're hungry, and Jesus corrects their thinking because of this miraculous signs that they had saw, and they were want, or he wanted to point them to this. Mur, the, sorry, they, he wanted to point them to the miracles that showed that he is 
nature was divine, that he is the true Messiah, and they still don't get it. And I think we can be honest. I do, and I'm sure you do at times, approach God thinking about the things that you can get from him. God, give me more as opposed to just talking to him in prayer as a loving father, as a beloved son or daughter, just communicating with him. Or Father, I would love rewards in this life, as your word says, not being generous for the rewards that come in the life to come. Or Father, give me blessings from others around me, not how can I bless other people as I gather as part of your church. And so Jesus, he corrects this crowd. How could he correct you if you asked him similar questions? So they continue with another question in verse 28. And look with me. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Okay, fine. Jesus. Our need is to seek and to find you, but the question that we as people often ask over and over again, what must we do? What must we do to be saved like Nicodemus asked in chapter 3? And in verse 29 is the answer. Jesus says, it's the work of God the big lie of our enemy, Satan. He wants us to continue to question that we haven't done enough to achieve our salvation and keep us asking the question, what else should we do? But Jesus says that salvation is a work of God and God alone. The Bible is very clear that it's the work of God to help us in our belief of God. God is the agent to cause us to believe and to be saved. And how it works with our responsibility and God's sovereignty over things, I am not entirely sure. But the Bible is clear that it is a work of God to save us. Where we are responsible to believe, but God in His mercy and His grace that we just sang gives us the ability to believe. It's not a pull it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not, I'll figure out a way to get this done. It's not, you have to be perfect. It's simply believe. It's a work of God. And when it's about our role, when we are frail and when we are weak, and then we eventually fail, we are reminded that it's a work of God, that God never will fail. God requires faith, but he also provides the ability to, for us to believe. Faith in the one that God sent, his son, the ones the crowds are seeking, the ones whom they are speaking to right now in the text. When it's up to us to save ourselves, who gets the glory? When it's the work of God, to save us, who gets the glory? And so your own walk with Jesus, who is getting the glory? 
so no matter how much you try, you cannot save yourself. No matter how much you give to the church, it will not save you. No matter how much you serve or read your Bible or fellowship with other Christians, it won't save you. Where God initiates our salvation, He accomplishes it, He secures it, and all those other things are a response in love to our loving Father who has given us so much. And so answer number one, we need that which is eternal. Answer to question number two is that salvation is a work of God. And like I said, they have a third question. It's in verse 30. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. You're kind of frustrated like me as you're reading this. You're like, hello, they want more of Jesus. They want more signs. They just saw him feed 20,000 people. They probably heard that he had walked across the lake to join them. They know that he turned water into wine, that he raised a cripple that was beside the lake or beside the pool. They wanted more spectacular signs from Jesus. They didn't want Jesus. The crowd is continuing to ask the same sorts of questions over and over again. Where Jesus is not enough for their hard hearts. And so they want Moses. But Jesus is a greater Moses, as we saw last week. Jesus provides a greater exodus. Jesus provides a greater Passover. And they are utterly blind to Jesus standing right in front of them. Their response at the end in verse 34 is kind of funny. Sir, give us this bread always. They still don't get it. They were looking for this continuous stream of bread to satisfy their appetites. They were, they were missing the continuous stream of provision that satisfies their eternal longing and spiritual hunger. And that stream is right in front of them. In John chapter 4, after Jesus was visiting with the Samaritan woman, and he told her that this everlasting water could be provided from him, something almost verbatim happened in John 4.15. When this woman heard what Jesus had said, she said this, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have, come, have to come here to draw water. As they said this passage this morning, Sir, give us this bread always. This crowd, they want to continue to receive from Jesus. They don't want to receive Jesus himself. But it's only the ones who receive him, who believe in his name, who are to become children of God, as we saw in chapter 1. And so friends, go to Jesus. Ask him for things. But don't miss him in the process. Be intrigued by the things of God and what God does for his people, but don't miss what he does in his people and for his people, as we'll see in the coming weeks for Good Friday and Easter. 
And so as we sung this morning, he has more and more grace for these folks that continue to not get it, who continue to question. But I think we do the same thing, right? When we don't understand, when we don't question, when we don't believe, when we don't follow, he still loves us just like he loves these group of crowds that are asking him more and more questions. He could just say, forget you and move on, but he still engages with them. And he explains himself even more because the plan of God is that the love of God sends the Son of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that you and I can become children of God. Look with me at verse 35 as Jesus continues to give them grace and communicate with them. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so Jesus, he uses this I am statement. He says, I am the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And this is the first of seven of Jesus's I am statements that we'll see as we continue through the gospel of John. And it's not about bread. It's about Jesus and the love that God has for his people. To eat and drink of this eternal, everlasting, excellent water and bread is to believe in Jesus the covenant God of the Old Testament, the work of God in our lives. And it's grace for Jesus to keep talking to these people, keep asking the same questions. But it's also grace that he provides what we truly need, especially when we don't want the giver of the gifts in the process. And in verse 36, Jesus calls out their unbelief. And they're seeing they're still not believing in their seeking of miracles and signs, they are not seeking after God. But Jesus still calls them to believe. And in verse 37, it's the hinge verse of this communication that Jesus is having with the crowds. Recall those questions that we had visited, those first three that they had said, and then what Jesus' response to those questions were. When did you come? What should we do? What have you done? Again, it's all the work of God, and Jesus just wants them to believe. The Father, he works our salvation. He causes Christians to believe, and Jesus, he says, will never, ever turn us away. Because it's the plan of God, is that the love of God sends the Son of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that we can become children of God where the Father initiates our salvation and we remain His children forever. Let's read verse 37 one more time. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Father, 
the crowd is missing it. But those who the Father gives will come, and they will remain his children forever. Jesus never throws away that or those whom the Father has called. And so friends, we can rest in that. Your sin will never cause Jesus to throw you away. You can never outsin the grace of God like we just sang. And when you think you've outsinned God's grace, he has so much more. It's inexhaustible. It's grace upon grace. And his wrath has been satisfied. His grace is sufficient. And so last weekend, just an example for you, our family was putting together a small plastic greenhouse that I had bought online, which was my first mistake of buying this online. Let's just say it wasn't working out very well. I started by myself, and I had asked for some help, and Kristen came and helped me. We still couldn't get it accomplished by ourselves, so I invited my children to come and help me. And let's just say I got very angry in the process. I took out my frustration on my family. I was a jerk. And I felt terrible about it. I apologized to each of them. I asked them for forgiveness later in the day. But I hated my sin, especially against my family. There are worse things that I could have done. But that's what I did. And it was still not enough for Jesus to cast me away and out of Christ because nothing can. Payment for that sin was satisfied as well on the cross. Nothing I did, nothing that you do can cast you out of God's hand. And I'll probably get angry again, which is not okay, but there's still more grace. It's still there for me, and Jesus never casts us out. That grace should cause us to seek to be holy, to fight our sin, to put to death, as Paul says, what is earthly in us, for you, but also for me. And I love the account recorded in the book that we've given out, Gentle and Lowly. Most of you have read it if you've participated in the men's study that East Randolph is hosting. But he recounts in one of his chapters, John Bunyan's short book about this passage, where he records, I will in no wise cast out, or I will in no way cast out. And he records a hypothetical conversation between sinner and Jesus. And so as I read these texts, maybe close your eyes and reflect on these words of a conversation that you might have with Jesus, but also Jesus' response to you. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise 
cast out, says Christ. But I've served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. And so here we see the preserving nature of Christ's heart. Sinners like us are limitless in our capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out, aren't we not? We are factories, as the author says, of fresh resistance to Christ's love. But he says as well, we cannot present a reason to finally close off his heart to his sheep because no reason, friends, exists. And so even in our objections, even in our doubts, even in our sins, nothing can threaten the true promises of God's word for you and for me. No reason exists where God would close off his hands to us and throw us away because he has satisfied our sin in his son on the cross. And we are now sons and daughters of God ourselves. So the plan of God is that the love of God sends the Son of God to satisfy the wrath of God forever so that we can become children of God. And Jesus gives us a reason in verse 38 for or because Jesus will perfectly preserve us to the end to those whom the Father has given. And in verse 39, he says he will not lose anyone. He's reiterating the things that he has already said. And in verse 40, Jesus reminds us that those who look upon the Son in accordance with the will of the Father will receive eternal life. And this looking upon the Son is a discerning look. It's not just a glance, not looking for what the Son provides, but it's a type of looking to perceive and to discern and to ultimately believe and to follow. Where salvation is a work of the Father by seeing the Son for who He is. And we are called to believe in the Son. And our responsibility, friends, is to look upon Him, to see Him for who He is, not blind like the crowds are. And so their questions, they stop. Have they seen Jesus now? that their true needs are met? The text doesn't say. But seeking after gifts, I think they've finally seen for the first time the gift giver that's right in front of them. And I think they're silenced. But we have some other friends that join the scene. The Jews come in and their response is a bit different. Let's look again at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. 
They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so we've seen the crowds, they come and they question and they seek these answers. And Jesus answered them. He appealed to them. And these Jews, the non-believers, not just like the crowds, they start grumbling. And as we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of John, the Jews are not Jesus' friends. And the idea of grumbling would immediately have brought up the idea for these Jews of the Jews in the Exodus, like we read this morning. God had grace on the Jews, though, in the desert. Jesus has grace for the Jews standing in front of him and are grumbling. And he addresses their need as well. That Jesus provides the food that satisfies all hunger, water that satisfies all thirst, and salvation that satisfies all of their bondage and our bondage to sin where he was talking to the crowds, but the Jews, they want to get in on the discussion and they are grumbling. And I want to kind of say, as I'm reading this text, I want, can you guys just mind your own business? You're, you're complicating the things that are going on here. And the Jews, they doubted Jesus' divinity. They see, they talked about his, um, his stepfather, Joseph. He's Joseph's son. We know that guy. He's not God. And in verse 42... It shows us that they're just as blind as the crowds. But Jesus again takes time to speak to these grumblers, to speak to these Druze who are blind but are hostile to him. And this grumbling was not just insulting, but it was dangerous. Where Jesus reminds them of God's hand in all of this, like he corrected the crowds, but at this time, again, it's God's work. In verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The crowds maybe were reminded that they would be never cast out. The point of that text that Jesus is saying is Jesus is confronting their unbelief from the Jews that they are not part of those who God will raise up in the last day. Where we are born into sin, we are morally unable to receive the gospel by faith without the grace of God in our lives. And one must overcome our sin to even respond and to believe. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the regeneration in our hearts to believe and follow. And in verse 45, he says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
And what this doesn't mean is that everyone who hears the gospel will automatically be a Christian. If you have kids, you know it's one thing to hear, but it's another thing to listen, to obey. To hear and learn from God does not mean that we actually see God, but rather to hear, to understand, to believe, to learn, to apply these things and follow according to what God has said in His Word. Simply put, it's hearing, it's learning to believe. And Jesus says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. For not everyone is saved, but only those who believe are the ones who are saved. We're seeking is great, but it's not enough until one believes. Hearing is great, but it's not enough until one believes. And learning is great, but it's not enough until one believes. Friends, it's all about believing. And so, my appeal to you this morning is to believe. That's it. Jesus wants both the crowd and the Jews to believe in their questioning, but also in their grumbling, and both of their doubting. A few weeks ago, in my sermon, I, was, I had said, everyone will die in this room. And someone graciously came up to me and helped me realize that you might not die in this room. But everyone in this room will die at some point. Hopefully not in this room. But verse 49, eating bread alone will not save you from death. Eating this bread of life will save you from eternal judgment, though. And as Moses was going to send the Jewish people back into the land of Israel in the, the book of Deuteronomy, he's recounting some of the things that had taken place that God's providential hand had saved them from in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses encouraged the nation of Israel and recalled those events that we saw already in the book of Exodus. Moses says this, and he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so, friends, we need God's word to guide us. Don't believe that ev the lie that everyone will be saved. Don't, don't believe the lie that God just does what he does and we have no part to respond to him. Like Jesus sows seeds of the gospel here with the Jews and the crowds, so too we sows seeds of the gospel to those who are around us. But ultimately, it's God who gives those who hear the gospel who learn about the gospel, the ability to believe the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God doesn't need to use us to spread the gospel, but he chooses to. And it's a great privilege to partner with him in what he is doing in the world. And in verse 51, Jesus, he transitions by stating that it's his flesh that is this true blood. He's beginning to talk about the ideas of Easter and Good Friday because it's the plan of God is that the love of God sends the Son of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that we can become children of God. It's not the man from heaven that will rot after the end of the day. It's Jesus. And we will see this further as we pick it back up in verse 52. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever, so whoever feeds on me, he will live, also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And so Jesus, he pronounces that his body would be given for all. And the Jews, they become antagonistic. They start to push even more. They cannot believe. They can't understand. They aren't hearing. And the identification with Jesus' flesh as the bread, it was just too much for them to handle. They aren't just grumbling anymore. They're debating. They're disputing with each other. They're disputing and debating about Jesus. And they think that argument and debate over Jesus and heavenly things is going to solve the world's problems. But the problem is that of sin. And so Jesus pronounced the truth, but they are also perplexed. Jesus promise, has promises for them, though. Eat and drink, he says in verse 53, is a promise. He does not mean that we would eat his body literally and drink his blood literally. Church never has done that. But satisfaction for their real spiritual hunger, for their real spiritual thirst, only comes from Jesus. He's the true food. He's the true drink that we all long for. And it's by that that we receive eternal life in verse 54. And in verse 56, he says that whoever feeds and drinks on him, who reminds themselves of the longing for Jesus, is he who remains and abides in Jesus. This idea of abiding is not a normal term that we use in our vocabulary, but it's an idea of remaining or resting or persisting in Christ. We'll get more of that in John chapter 15 in a couple months. But abiding is a sign that we are in Christ by how we live according to what God's word says. It's continuing to feed and to drink from the well that never runs dry. And as Christ remains in us, we abide in him because he never casts us out because it's a work of God. And that which Jesus starts, he will bring to completion to the end. And so do you see the way that God works, but also we work in the process where we have a responsibility to believe. We have a responsibility to abide. But they're both a gift of God and God works to help us to maintain that. And believing in Jesus' life poured out for the world is that authentic foundation, that firm foundation. It's a cornerstone for our motivation and for our endurance as Christians. Where Christ works in us and we work ourselves into Christ. 
And it's a mutual abiding. It's a mutual fellowship that we have with Christ. Where Paul uses these words in Galatians 2.20. Where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus gives the Jews one more reminder. Whoever feeds of the breath of life, bread of life, Jesus himself, for his eternal sustenance, will live forever. Those who abide in Christ and Christ in them who don't have a superficial faith like the Israelites in the deserts or the Jews who are grumbling before him or debating will live forever. Jesus gives life where death reigned in Exodus with temporal satisfaction, but most importantly, as he says here, with eternal salvation. Because it's the plan of God that the love of God since the Son of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that we could become children of God. Some will question this. Some will grumble about this. Some will dispute this and debate this. But what will you do? Reflect this week on your posture towards the words of Jesus. These are hard things. Next week, we'll see the disciples' response to these hard things. And it's different than the crowd's it's different than the Jews. I'd encourage you to spend some time reading the passage that we'll be in next week, starting in verse 60 through the end of the chapter. And I look forward to worshiping with you all as we reflect on that together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you loved us first before we had done anything to make us lovable. God, we thank you for sending your Son to die in our place on the cross and that by believing in Him we are lovable. But the words that you said of your son and his baptism that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased by those who believe in the atoning work of Jesus on our behalf you say those of us that this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased and God we thank you that in the midst of our continual struggle with sin as we continue to fight and put to death that which is earthly in us that you give us the power by your spirit to, to fight the good fight to finish our race but in no way whatsoever will you cast us out. And God, so we thank you that that which you started, you will bring to completion. And as we continue to worship and to reflect and to encourage one another, would you help us to do that together for our joy, but most importantly for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.